Children may be dismissed to go to children's church at this time. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 17 this morning. My trusty watch that was, was, uh, had water in it, it finally died. I had it about a month. That's what you get for buying cheap products. But I've got my trusty phone here, so we'll finish on time and have a good lunch. We're in the midst of Paul's and his companion's second missionary journey. Uh, Paul has been traveling well beyond Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and he's gone into the, the region of Macedonia. We looked at that last week, and now he's moving into Thessalonica and to Berea, and we read the accounts of Paul's adventures in these two places here today. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, And on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, and with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. May God bless the reading and hearing of his holy word to us this morning. The gospel will turn your world upside down. Uh, We read that here in the remarks of Paul and Silas and Timothy and their friends' opponents. These people who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Faith in Christ will turn the world upside down as, uh, as, as it did. We see that the gospel went throughout that, uh, the world at that time and spread to every corner and has changed the entire history of the world. But on an individual basis, it will also turn your world upside down and we see that today 
And as we think about living in the times in which we live, we see that the, the Christian worldview has come, is coming increasingly into conflict with uh, the worldviews of peoples around us, peoples even in government. And we see lots of controversy, lots of things happening uh, in, our, in our country, in the world, that seem to indicate that these other worldviews are gaining the ascendancy while Christianity is on the decline. But as we think about what Luke is telling us, Luke is tracing the fact that Christ is still at work in the world. He is building his church and the mission cannot fail. Even in the midst of controversy, even in the midst uh, of facing opponents who are very determined, Christ will win. If you look at the Bible from the fall of man to the very end, that's the, that's the story that we have. God has redeemed a, a people for himself. He's creating a kingdom of believers and he is going to protect that kingdom. He's going to build that kingdom up and all his and our enemies will be defeated in the end. Well, these things have a, a lot, as, we, as I'm noting, a lot of things to do with us living today. And there are two points I want to make today from this passage that really influence how we navigate uh, this world in which we live. First, we want to look at the content of saving faith because we learn a lot about saving faith in this passage. We see the content of saving faith, and then we want to think a little bit about the conflict of saving faith. Now, these two episodes in this second missionary journey uh, we find Paul and his companions going into the Jewish synagogues, as was his uh, practice, his custom, it tells us there. And he reasoned with the Thessalonians in the first uh, account, and then the Bereans. He reasoned them from the scriptures, from the Old Testament. Now, this, we see, was an intellectual exercise. Uh, he was engaging in... Uh, dialogue, the word there, reasoned with them, uh, is the word from which we get our word, dialogue. So it wasn't a lecture. That's a, that's a different word altogether. It tells us there that he explained and proved. He explained from the scriptures and he proved something from the scriptures. And those words, uh, uh, the word explained means to open by dividing or drawing apart, drawing asunder. You're opening something up so that everyone can see it. And that's what Paul is doing with the scriptures. He's opening them up and showing them things out of the Bible. If we put it like he does to Timothy in his letter, he's rightly dividing the word of truth. He's opening it up so that they can see what's there. And the word to prove, it also has a similar meaning. It means to lay something out, to place something before someone so that they can be uh, enlightened. And that's what Paul's doing here. He's opening it up. He's laying it out for them uh, so, that, so that they can see the point that he is making. Now, what is he telling them? What is he opening up from the scriptures? What is he laying out before them? Well, it tells us here. He tells, the, he tells them that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. It was absolutely necessary and he probably pointed them to such scriptures as Isaiah 53, where it talks about the suffering servant of the Lord who gave his life as a ransom, or Psalm 22 that Jesus himself quoted on the cross, 
or Zechariah 12 and 13, other passages that point to a, a suffering Messiah who rises from the dead. You see, they did not believe that the Messiah would suffer and die. That was a, a real stumbling block to the Jews, as we read about in other places in the Bible. But most importantly, uh, not only did he say, look, the Messiah that you're waiting for, the Bible tells you that he's going to suffer and die. It's there in Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, and others. But most importantly, he, he says this Messiah that you're looking for, who has to suffer and die and rise from the dead, is, is actually Jesus Christ, who suffered, who was crucified, and who rose from the dead. So some of them heard this, and they were persuaded. It tells us there that some Jews, uh, some Greeks, some of the Greeks who were God-fears, they had, they had converted to Judaism, and they were looking for the Messiah themselves. And Paul's argument won the day with those people. Luke notes the women. Uh, Macedonian women held prominent positions in the community, so that was uh, important for Luke to note. The people of influence, people uh, who had some power, even embraced these truths. So a diversity of, of people came to faith in Jesus through Paul's preaching. And then when Paul gets run out of town, he goes, he goes about 40, 50 miles down to Berea, uh, he does the same thing. He goes into the synagogue and he reasons with them. And verse 12 tells us that many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. Now we learn something, as I said before, from, of this, from this passage of the nature of saving faith. And this is uh, one of the most important questions, uh, one of the most important issues that you need to understand. What is saving faith? There's a lot of confusion out in the world about what that actually is. The great issue in the 1500s, the Protestant Reformation, the great issue was how can a person be justified before God? How can a person be right with God? How can a person stand before God as a sinner and, and be acceptable? And the Reformers' controversial position was that we are justified by faith alone. Faith alone. Nothing else needed. No works. Just by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Now when he said that, many of the godly leaders in the Roman Catholic Church were very upset. They said, well does that mean that a person can just believe in Jesus and live any way that they want to live? So the Roman Catholic Church reacted uh, against this position of justification by faith alone fiercely because they were afraid that this position of the reformers uh, would lead to easy believism in which a person only had to believe and, and never had to be concerned about bringing forth the fruits of righteousness. So it was crucial that the reformers carefully defined what they meant by saving faith. And we must do the same because it's that important of an issue. The reformers went back and they did their studies of the New Testament, especially the word faith that's there, the Greek word for faith, and they found that there were three distinctive aspects of biblical faith. 
three aspects of faith that are absolutely necessary. And we need to understand these three things so that we can understand saving faith. They gave Latin names to them, and I'll give those to you. First, notitia, second, ascensus, and then fiducia. I'm going to explain them all three, so let me do that. First, notitia. Saving faith, uh, the first element of saving faith is notitia, an awareness of the facts. You, you have to know the facts in order to have faith in them. Uh, you have to know the right facts. You can't have faith in nothing. That doesn't work. There has to be content to the faith. And that content has to be the correct content. You know, a lot of people today says, it really doesn't matter what you believe as long as you are sincere. Well, that's kind of silly. Uh, because what if you believe the wrong thing and you followed the wrong path and you followed one sincerely that ended up in the wrong place? I'm afraid there are a lot of people in the world who would do that today. It's like uh, knowing that a hurricane is coming and sincerely believing that the best place that you could be is on the beach. I mean, that's ludicrous, isn't it? You know, the best place to be is somewhere north of here, out of harm's way. But see, having sincere faith in the wrong facts is just as destructive as not having any faith at all. So, first of all, you must have the correct, true information. And that's what Paul is doing in the synagogue. These people had a shortage of information. The information was there, but they didn't understand it. They, they had never seen it, and Paul is opening it up to them. He is giving them the correct, true information of the Messiah. And see, if they didn't have the right facts, they could not believe in Jesus as the only way of salvation. So that's the first part. You have to have the right facts. Now the second aspect of faith that the Reformers identified is one that we call a census or ascent in, a, in, in a English. Um, a census or ascent is our conviction that the content of our faith is true. We may have the facts, but you, know, it, you don't have faith if you don't believe it's true. You can know about the Christian faith and yet believe that it is untrue. A lot of people like that in our day and time. Genuine faith says that the content, the notitia, the facts taught by Holy Scripture is in fact true. There are people who hear the facts, but they don't believe they're true. Assent is saying, yes, they're true. Now the text here tells us that in verse 4, that some of the people who heard the facts that Paul presented, they were persuaded. In other words, they thought, yes, they are indeed True. Of course, this was what Paul was seeking to have happen. He wanted to convince them, and that's why he was laying out the argument before them. But if you look at verse 11, there where it, where it talks about the Bereans, it tells us that they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. They were presented with the facts. Paul laid it out before them. And then they checked it out for themselves. They dug into the, their scriptures. They studied it every day. And some of them decided what Paul was saying was true, and they believed. 
What a great example for us today. Too many people in our world today reject Christianity without actually investigating what Christianity is all about. They've heard other people talk about Christianity. They look around them and they see that Christianity is really not the cool thing to believe. And so they just go around, uh, they go uh, about their lives without ever actually looking at Christianity in depth to see if its claims are trustworthy or true. The culture at large has rejected Christianity. So, hey, everybody must be right, and I'm just going to go along with the, with the majority opinion around me. A lot of people live that way. And there's a word for people like this. It's called lemmings. Uh, a lemming is an arctic rodent. Now, look this up. <clears throat> a, a lemming is an arctic rodent, and it, it gets a bad rap. You know, it's like a, it looks like a little chipmunk. And it lives in Norway and places like way up north. <clears throat> and these uh, little rodents, they migrate. And they migrate in mass. And because the drive to migrate and find new places to live is so strong that sometimes they'll all jump off a cliff. Because the little critters can swim. But sometimes they aren't strong enough uh, to, to clear the body of water that they've chosen to swim in. So early scientists saw this phenomenon and thought, well, these stupid creatures are just following one another over the cliff and, and committing mass suicide. And so it's become a saying that uh, you know, people can be like lemmings. They're just following the crowd to their destruction. And that's what a lot of people are doing today. They're following the crowd to their destruction because they haven't stopped and said, where are we going? And has anyone bothered to think through the implications of, of how we're living, of what we're believing and what we're being told? Have you investigated like the Bereans did? They looked at it. They investigated the facts for themselves. They didn't just take another person's word for it. They looked at the scriptures and they dug down deep daily. So that's the second part. They heard the facts and some of them decided the facts were true. Now, that's, we can't stop there. That's two-thirds of the way home. The last third's the most important third. The last part of saving faith is the most important because it builds on the other two, but, but it takes you all the way home. And that is fiducia. Fiducia refers to personal trust and reliance. Knowing and believing the truth of the content of the Christian faith is not enough. Even demons, James tells us, can do that. They know the truth. They believe the truth in, in the sense they, they know that the facts are true, but they do not trust in Christ. They do not follow God with their lives. Faith is only true saving faith if knowing about and assenting to the claims of Jesus, one personally trusts in him alone for salvation. That's the last step. That's the important step. Look at what Luke tells us about the Thessalonian believers in verse 4. Verse 4 there he says, uh, Paul presented the facts to them. He laid it, opened it up and laid it out before them about Jesus being the Messiah, the suffering and risen Messiah. And some of them were persuaded. They assented. They assensed. And joined Paul and Silas. 
See, there's another step there. They assented to what he was saying, but then they joined Paul and Silas. They identified with Paul and Silas and other Christians. They became followers of Christ. They joined the community of believers. That was the step that's being noted here. They did something about it. And they said, yes, I'm with, I believe he's the Messiah, and I'm going to follow him with his other people who are following him. That's what's going on there in verse 4. Now when Paul's opponents charge him with saying that there is another king, Jesus, it indicates not only was Paul trying to prove that he was Jesus is the Messiah, but the fact that he is the Messiah, he's, he's, he's spelling out the implications of that. It indicates that Paul was exhorting them uh, to do something about it. He gave them these facts in a persuasive manner, and he laid out the implications of those facts. And here's the argument, possibly, that we can deduce that, that Paul made there. He says, uh, the scriptures actually tell us that the Messiah must suffer and rise. And Jesus is that suffering and risen Messiah. And the appropriate response to his saving work is now to bow the knee and become uh, servants of this great king. If he is the Messiah, the promised one, that's what the word Christ means, the anointed one, the one that God has set apart to be our Savior and Lord, if that's true, then saving faith takes that last step and says, I bow the knee. He is my King and my Lord and my Savior. This is where people struggle with saving faith in our day and time. It's one thing to have all the facts presented to you and, and even, an, even for you to assent to the truth of those facts. A lot of people, especially if you grew up in the South, you've probably heard all this from the time you were a little child if you grew up in church. But it is quite another thing to actually live in response to those facts. In other words, you might believe the news about Jesus, that he is the ultimate king sent by God to suffer in your place and die, and then conquer death by rising to the place of king of kings and lord of lords. But it is quite another thing to place yourself under his rule to allow him to call the shots in your life, to actually be your king. I think Americans have trouble with this whole king thing. We don't have a king, you know, and we don't like for anybody to tell us what to do, especially don't like a king telling us what to do. That's where the American Revolution came in. So we, as Americans, uh, are a bit resistant to authority figures like this. But that's what Jesus is. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's bought us with a price. He came to earth and died in our place. The King himself did this. And it tells us in the scriptures that we are bought with a price. And if that is true, then he owns us. We're, we're his servants, his slaves. Paul uses that language every time he opens a letter. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, a doulos in the Greek, a slave of Christ. He doesn't do what he wants to do, necessarily. I mean, he, he does because he wants to do what God wants him to do. But he's following Christ wherever that takes him. And that means sometimes you have to take up your cross. Well, actually, it means every day. You have to take up your cross 
and follow him. And it's not easy. It puts you into conflict with a lot of things, with the world, and with the status quo of the world. True saving faith will change your life. I fear that many people have the first two aspects of saving faith, but not the third. They haven't given that their lives over to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what we're talking about is having your world turned upside down. And that's what saving faith will do. It will put you into conflict with the world's status quo and with the world itself and your own sinful tendencies. The opponents of Paul understood the implications of what Paul was saying. They said, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Now that word, the phrase, they have upset the world or they have turned the world upside down is literally they have upset the world. We have a saying, I don't want to upset the apple cart. I don't want to turn the apple cart over. In other words, I don't want to, I don't want to shake up the status quo. I didn't mean to, to upset the apple cart. I didn't mean to upset the status quo. The implications of the gospel will upset your world, will shake you up. It will turn your life upside down because you'll no longer be calling the shots in your life. Rosaria Butterfield was a leftist lesbian professor of English and women's studies at Syracuse U. She was one of the founders of the queer movement. She hated Christians and Jesus. She described them as stupid, pointless, and menacing, and she meant it. But then a a pastor came into her life, a friend. She was doing some research about the Christian right and politics, and she met this man, And uh, he blew away all of her assumptions about what Christians were like and eventually what Christianity was like. And she came to believe those facts that were shared uh, by this pastor to her about Christ, and it radically changed her life. She describes what happened to her as a train wreck conversion. You can read that in Christianity Today. A train wreck conversion. Everything that she knew and had worked for, uh, all her values, they were all upset. Uh, they were turned upside down. Now she's a pastor's wife and a mother, and she promotes the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus, whom she once rejected. The gospel challenges your status quo. Now, the, the Thessalonians had a status quo. You see it. The, the, the way they did things, the way they thought about things, About 15 years before the events that we're reading about here in Acts 17, about 27 B.C., the Thessalonians had replaced the head of Zeus on their coins with the the head of Caesar. Uh, And they worshipped Caesar as a god. They were seeking to gain favor with the Roman emperor. And also on their Roman coins was the slogan, Pax et Securitas, Peace and Security. This was a Roman imperial slogan that signified Rome's promise to provide peace and security to its citizens. We have e pluribus unum uh, on our money. Slogans that promote uh, the values of the state. Well, a short time after Paul is driven out of uh, Thessalonica, he writes a letter to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, and in it, Paul speaks of how he was torn away from them and how Satan hindered his return to them. And so he writes a letter to encourage these young believers in their faith. 
And hear what he says in chapter 5. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, while people are saying, there is peace and security. The exact words on their coins. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. And this surely echoes what he had been telling them in person and why his opponents levied those political charges against him and his fellow believers. They are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Now certainly this, is, this tells us what Paul was telling the Thessalonians when he was preaching to them. If you really want peace and security, don't look to the, to the Romans for it. Don't look to Caesar for it. He's just an earthly king. Uh, Rome is just an earthly political entity. It can't save you. But there is an eternal king, Jesus Christ, who has an eternal kingdom, an everlasting kingdom with an unlimited dominion that promises sure peace and security uh, forever because he has defeated the greatest enemies that we have, sin and death. He died on the cross for sin. He rose from the grave conquering death. Now the implications of that are that, that, hey, we've got to look to another king for our peace and security. We've got to look somewhere else to give meaning to our lives. There's something greater than what the world is telling us to pursue. See, that's the implication. They had to act upon that truth. Well, isn't that just like today? The world defends its ways vehemently with zeal like Paul's opponents. It says that the, the Jews were jealous and that's why they stirred up a riot. The word there is zealous. They didn't want the status quo rocked. The world doesn't want King Jesus telling them what to do. They want autonomy, self-rule. But as the Proverbs say, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death, like lemmings off the cliff. And the world holds up sin... Uh, as something that we can engage in to be free and to be happy. But in the words of an article I read by Harry Reader, sin is a cesspool of death and despair camouflaged as a fulfilling well of life. That's what the writer of Proverbs means when he says that there's a way that seems right, but it's going to end in death. Becoming a follower of Christ will put you into conflict with the world and its status quo. What's the status quo of your world? Where's the world telling you to, to not follow Jesus? Trust in the Lord. He's the only way to eternal peace and security because he's the king of kings and lord of lords. Take that last step of saving faith and avoid the roadblocks to saving faith. Avoid, first of all, ignorance. You know, the Bereans weren't ignorant. They, they, they investigated the truth for themselves. They dove into the Bible to find out what it said and if the claims of Christ were true. Do the same. Don't take other people's word for it. Secondly, don't misplace your trust. You know, the, the Jews in Thessalonica, the others in Thessalonica who were opponents of Christianity, they were sincere. They were zealous for their way. But even a sincere commitment to the world status quo will end in death. And then finally, follow through with the implications of the truth. Bow the, bow the knee to the only one who can give you lasting peace and eternal security. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these promises of your word, and we, uh, we thank you that there is a way. 
There, Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Lord, help us to live every day uh, subservient to you, King Jesus. Help us to see that you will transform our desires to be your desires and that you will tra- change our values from, from the world's values to your values. And we pray that you would do that work in us even today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.